Welcome to Legal Legends of the Bluegrass, a podcast brought to you by the Kentucky Justice Association. My name is John Holland. I'm a proud Kentucky trial attorney and honored to serve as your host. Today we are one-on-one with legal legend Charlie Moore in our second episode. Charlie was born in eastern Kentucky and educated in central Kentucky and Louisville prior to establishing his practice in Owensboro. Charlie is the epitome of a Kentucky trial lawyer as he has tried a wide variety of complex cases from Pikeville to Paducah. Today, Charlie provides advice to attorneys young and old alike on what it takes to fight a battle from his years of experience in the courtroom. We hope you enjoy today's episode. You could just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself uh, and your practice. Well, let me start from the beginning, if I might. Uh, I graduated from law school in December of 73. I was I guess a semester early, and uh, I was planning to join my brother in Owensboro in the practice of law, but I was going to be married the following August. I didn't want to come to Owensboro, end up traveling back and forth to Louisville, as I knew I would. That's where my wife-to-be lived. And so, uh, believe it or not, I just went up to Frankfurt and walked into an office, Department of Education, said I graduated from law school, and I'm looking for a job. you have any openings? And the lady has said, no, but you might travel to special fund, which was a part of the workman compensation scheme at that time. I went over and uh, the fellow who ran the special fund hired me and uh, said, look, you can take a month off to study for the bar. And uh, uh, I said, well, now I'm going to be leaving here in September. And he said, just give me a few months. I'll be fine. And uh, that was great experience because I took uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of depositions and appeared in uh, various courts. I, I never will forget, forget that I appealed one and it went from the workers' compensation uh, decision to the circuit court. And I went up to lecture camp for Judge Hogg and I had the law just where I needed it. And I got through making my presentation. He said, More. He said, uh, You recited the holding of that case perfectly. But he said, You know, uh, uh, that was my case, and I disagreed with the court then. I disagree with the court now. Blam, that was over. <laughs> so I learned a few things about the practicality of practicing law and then came down to uh, uh, practice with my brother. And at that time, people were appointed by the court to represent folks in criminal cases. And I was immediately appointed to represent a man in a felony case accused of uh, knowingly receiving stolen property and went over and tried that case. And luckily, they found him not guilty, although the stolen products were found on his premises. In any event, uh, uh, they kind of got me uh, fired up about trying cases. And uh, a lady uh, was sent to me that had been bitten on the breast by a junkyard dog. And uh, they, uh, when I filed the case, they offered $700. I went over and tried it, and the jury gave me $3,700, and I was off and running as a trial lawyer. <laughs> and uh, uh, ended up trying some serious criminal cases uh, and eventually tried some serious uh, civil cases. And from that, I began to uh, eliminate some of the work that I would do and uh, probably 25 years ago, I started doing just uh, personal injury litigation. And occasionally I'd throw in another case, that I, another type case I was interested in. Uh, I recently had an intellectual property case that was fascinating. The last case I tried involved uh, uh, 
a farm uh, over in southern Indiana, and actually up in Corridon, Harrison County, and where a, a chemical company had destroyed a uh, wheat seed crop. So I threw in a few cases I found interested, interesting uh, over the years, but uh, primarily I've been doing personal injury litigation for the last quarter of a century. There's the old adage in Kentucky of, uh, you know, talking about our state from Pikeville to Paducah. Uh, I think you're kind of the living embodiment of that. You, you've lived all across the state. And uh, from what I've seen, it sounds like you've also tried cases all across the state. Well, actually, I have. Uh, one of the first serious cases I tried was in Pike County. And uh, I, uh, a few years ago, I tried a case down in Hickman. So I literally have tried cases from uh, uh, one of the farthest eastern points to one of the farthest western points and several jurisdictions in between. It's, it's been a pleasure to uh, go over Kentucky and, and uh, enjoy the various uh, uh, regions of Kentucky as you practice law. Charles, you mentioned the case, uh, the case in Pike County. Um, that was a case involving a coal company, right? It was, and it was, it was probably the first uh, really serious case, civil case that I handled. And I learned some lessons from that that I think were important to me and, and may be important to some of the younger lawyers. Um, that case involved a, a young man who was using a blowtorch to cut the top off of a 55-gallon oil drum to make a, what's called a fire barrel on a uh, strip mine job, uh, it exploded. And uh, so I was, and burned him severely, about 40% of his body. And uh, I had known him growing up in Pike County, knew his family, and they called me. And I had the barrel sent off down Houston, Texas and for a spectrometry evaluation and determined that gasoline was in the barrel. And I had to eliminate the various people who were working on that job in order to isolate who may have brought gasoline into the job in this oil drum and finally determine it was a company by the name of Winston Cole. Uh, so I was getting ready to try that case. This is kind of an interesting little digression here. And uh, uh, now this was about, let me see, close to 40 years ago. And uh, they offered uh, or actually the lawyer said, uh, you know, I've got, I want to go on vacation. Uh, I need to leave tomorrow. The case is going to start on Monday. I believe that was a Thursday. And he said, but I think for sure I can get you $135,000 settle a case. My client wanted to settle it. He left. Uh, then the company started trying to chisel on it, angered us. We tried the case, uh, went for over a week. And here's some lessons I learned. Uh, I was up all night, practically every night. By the time the, uh, I was three or four days into the case, my chest was killing me from stress. Uh, we had a decent result. Jury gave me every cent I asked for, 964,000 some odd dollars. Uh, and at the end of that case, I said, if I'm going to be a trial lawyer, I can't let these cases affect me like that. I have to take better care of myself. I can't end up with chest pains. And so a few months later, I tried a medical malpractice case and I made myself get 
plenty of sleep. I made myself not feel the stress on and on of that case. If I hadn't learned that lesson, I think my career would have been cut much shorter. So the lesson I would suggest to young lawyers and to other lawyers is take care of yourself because these cases are so extraordinarily stressful and difficult. You need to be very cautious to preserve your health. Uh, and secondly, here's something else I learned. When I uh, got the verdict and came out, uh, a lawyer who I knew said to me, he said, as I said, the jury gave us every cent we asked for. He said, Charlie, he said, I, I sure wish you had asked for a million dollars. So he'd say you had a million dollars, which by the way, there just weren't many, if any of those then. I do know that was the biggest verdict in Pike County at that time. It's not a big verdict now. But I thought to myself, no matter what you do, you can't please everybody. So that's a second lesson that I learned from that case. And I, they've carried me throughout my my career and I commend them to anyone. I'm hearing you talk about that case, it's interesting. Uh, talked about, you know, gathering the drum and, and sending it to an expert. Uh, and I've seen with some of your other cases, you know, the products cases you handle, for example, getting a piece of evidence at the very beginning uh, and, and kind of building your case theme or learning what happened from there. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do at the beginning of a case and how you look for those key pieces of evidence that, that you know you're gonna have to rely on. Well, factual investigation is absolutely key and you have to conduct it in different ways given the type of case that you're dealing with. Um, if it's a uh, medical negligence case, obviously you have to get all the medical records. Uh, I get medical records from birth until uh, the current time uh, regarding the client. And you have to uh, you have to sift through those, uh, every line, and you have to uh, anticipate what the defenses will be and what the explanations will be as you develop your theory of the case. If it's a products case, uh, you, you mentioned the case that I had uh, down at Hickman against Chrysler. Uh, it, involved a steering malfunction. And uh, uh, so uh, there's a group of folks that are involved in crashworthiness cases that uh, product, uh, automobile product defect cases that I've worked with over the years. And uh, I always immediately try to get the person to reconstruct the, the wreck and uh, to uh, come up with the uh, various uh, concepts that may account for it. And in that case, I sent a person out with a metal detector to try to locate a particular part that was missing. And lo and behold, we were able to find it. And I think it takes a kind of careful uh, factual investigation uh, at the beginning of a case any case uh, in order to have a firm foundation that gives you the confidence to pursue the case and to uh, spend the money that's necessary for a case. And uh, spending that money is always a big part of success. Napoleon said you need three things to fight a war. You need money, money, and money. And that's true 
uh, in serious personal injury litigation as well. So you don't want to be off and running with a case that's going to cost a lot of money to prosecute, going to take a lot of your time and your energy and your thoughts, preempt the other things you can be doing without gathering all your facts at the beginning as carefully as you can. That's just a fascinating story that the, was that piece or that piece of evidence found with the metal detector out at the scene of the crash site? Yes, it was. Within, uh, oh, I, I, if I remember right, within a couple of hundred feet of where the crash site occurred. Wow, that's fascinating. Charlie, you talked a bit about how your, um, your practice, you know, you, you started with the work comp. Uh, you had criminal cases. You started in some smaller injury cases. Your practice has changed a lot over the years. Um, what what did it take for you uh, as your practice grew to be able to learn, uh, you know, not certainly the cases that you want to accept, but the cases that you had to say no to? That's the most important decision you can make, whether you should reject a case or not reject a case. And uh, I, I think... Uh, I took a lot of cases that, that other people turned down. Um, and it, it starts with that careful, factual investigation. And then you have to have a concept uh, that makes sense to you and that you're willing to be committed to. And then you have to go out and find the support that you may need for a case. Uh, in medical negligence cases, for example, we go through three steps. One, we get all the medical records, summarize those medical records, know what's in the medical records. Two, we go to the medical literature to find out what is taught the doctor so we can have a knowledgeable, informed conversation with the experts. And then thirdly, we go to the experts and find out what they have to say. And then and only then can we make the commitment to pursue the medical malpractice case. I learned about that investigating through reviewing the medical literature uh, in, a, in, a, in a very uh, tragic way. Um, a young man uh, was in a wreck, went to a local hospital in Owensboro and uh, uh, ultimately was determined to have an infection in his hip. Uh, and his father had been in the service, was in the service, so they shipped him to Walter Reed Hospital in Washington. And uh, uh, I was a young lawyer. Uh, this is one of the first medical malpractice cases I've looked at. And so uh, I went up to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, Colonel, who was chief orthopedic surgeon at Walter Reed Army Hospital, and a fellow by the name of Reed, and consulted with him because the government had a large lien. And so I thought we'd be on the same page. And he said, you know, he said, I will tell you this. They may have been negligent in not discovering this uh, as quickly as they should not. But he said, before anybody would reasonably have discovered the ongoing infection here, it was too late to do anything about this. 
So there's, there's no case here. And so I came home and uh, I had had to file the case because the statute was running. And I told my client exactly what I'd learned from this, what I thought was the epitome of integrity. And we dismissed that case. Uh, six months later, that doctor ended up a partner in the orthopedic practice that I had sued. And I said to myself, I will never rely upon what an expert says without doing my own independent research so I can evaluate the credibility of that expert. And I think that's a lesson that will serve everyone well, not only in uh, regard to medical negligence, but particularly in regard to medical negligence, but also in regard to engineering concepts as well. You need to do your independent research for sure. Charlie, you talked about the, uh, the Bryant versus Winston coal case uh, in Pike County. Uh, let's let's shift over to the other side of the state. Uh, I know a case that, that you were involved in that sounds really fascinating was the Payne versus Ford Motor Company case. If you don't mind telling us a bit about that case. It's another lesson case. Uh, a young man was operating his family's Ford gasoline tractor. And this tractor would hiss around the uh, fuel filter cap. And that was located directly in front of the operator. The gasoline tank was over the engine and there was a smokestack in front of it. So he uh, reached forward, twisted the cap just a little bit. It blew off, gasoline geysered in the air and burned him severely. He was sent to me by a, another lawyer. Uh, I said, this shouldn't happen. And I'll never forget, I, I, I got on an airplane and I flew to uh, Houston and then I flew, flew over to College Park and then I flew up to Detroit to talk to experts about why this would happen. And when I got back and I said, I still don't have an expert but I kept plugging. And I finally found a fella out in, uh, at the University of Missouri, who uh, I was impressed with, engineer there, that explained what he thought was happening, that the gasoline was being heated in the tank by the engine and the fuel filter, filler cap did not have sufficient venting, so pressure would build up and I sued Ford Motor Company. And lo and behold, after about 10 or 12 trips to take depositions in Detroit, I discovered a Polaroid picture of this phenomena happening at an independent testing lab where the gasoline tank was submerged in water that was brought up to the ambient temperature you could expect in a field, say 100 and over the engine, 110 degrees. And then there was a mechanical arm that would twist the uh, cap. And when that happened, the gasoline would geyser into the air. And Ford Motor Company knew that that phenomena existed long before my client was burned. As a consequence of my case, Ford, issued a recall to provide every gasoline 
tractor it had operating in the world with a new gasoline cap that had the appropriate venting capacity so the pressure would not build up in the tank. It's an example of how the torque system promotes safety. And I was very pleased with that outcome. Fascinating, a case that you were involved in and a discovery that you made there, you know, without question, you helped this from happening to other people uh, through the civil justice system. Yes, and there's one other point that I should make. The only reason that I discovered that Polaroid picture was not only my perseverance, but also the integrity of the lawyer who represented Ford Motor Company. They produced it when the circumstances called on them to produce it. And that would not have happened but for the integrity of that defense lawyer. You brought up a good point there, Charlie, and I think it's something that, uh, you know, we're in, a, we're in a profession that's adversarial by nature, uh, and, and we, do, we are going against one another, and we're trying to win the case for our clients. Uh, but what advice do you have for attorneys, you know, working with opposing counsel uh, on these cases that can sometimes last many years? I'm glad you brought that point up. Some of uh, my most rewarding relationships have uh, developed with opposing lawyers. And let me tell you what I mean by rewarding relationship. There was a very fine defense trial lawyer, one of the best defense trial lawyers I ever tried against in Owensboro. And we tried several cases against each other. And we would travel throughout the United States to take experts' depositions. He became terminally ill. We did not socialize. He had never invited me to his house, nor had I invited him to my house. But he called me and he said, you know, Charlie, I'm, I'm terminally ill. I'm going to die. And I accept that. A good life. And he said, I want you to be one of my pallbearers. That's one of the most touching experiences that I've had. And that was a mutual respect that we'd gained through for each other, through the work that we had done in opposition to each other. So that's the first uh, rewarding experience uh, that I would tell you about. And the second one is this, I represent, represented uh, five widows whose husbands had been killed in the pyro mine disaster. The case was defended by the largest law firm in the United States at that time, Meyer, Brown, and Platt in Chicago. Uh, they had signed a woman to that case, and uh, we fought for uh, uh, almost two years on jurisdictional issues. And I finally prevailed. The case got resolved uh, very favorably to my clients. And a few years later, uh, there was a terrible fire at a hotel here in Kentucky, and it killed uh, the two folks who left three children orphaned. And those folks were from Chicago, where Meyer Brown and Platt was located. They were outstanding people. And uh, so they made an inquiry at Meyer Brown and Platt who they should get to represent them in western Kentucky. And the woman that I had fought with for two years recommended me and I took that case. They retained me, 
took that case and it resulted in uh, about a $15 million outcome, one of the largest cases I've had. Now, both of those experiences I've told you about, one which resulted in great material reward and one which resulted in great emotional reward would not have happened if I had not treated opposing counsel with the respect they deserve. I think it's important that you treat your opposing counsel with respect, accommodate them when you can, that's not a detriment to your client. Now, you will encounter defense lawyers who do not deserve respect, who will not allow you to treat them in the way that you want to treat them. And you don't need to roll over them. You don't need to do anything uh, particularly nice for them. But I can tell you, uh, if you do treat opposing counsel right, it can have great reward for you in many ways. Those are fascinating stories, you know, both of them, whether it be the referral or, uh, you know, carrying a, an opposing counsel, you know, uh, as a pallbearer, that's just, those are two of the biggest honors, you know, I, I could ever imagine right there. Yeah, that's the way I feel. And I've had various other experiences which have been very positive that uh, have come from my relationship with opposing counsel. We hope you are enjoying this episode so far. Before we get back to the second half of our one-on-one, -on -one, enjoy this message from KJA Platinum sponsor, Ringler Associates, Brad Cecil, Cindy Chanley, and Gail Christen, sponsors of Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. On behalf of Brad Cecil, Gail Christen, and myself, Cindy Chanley, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. As your KJA Platinum sponsors, we appreciate all the work you do. As you continue in your practice, keep in mind that we at Ringler are your objective settlement advisors. If you have problems on any part of the settlement resolution, give us a call. We are now back one-on-one -on -one with legal legend, Charlie Moore. Charlie, the Kentucky Justice Association is you know, kind enough and um, to put help us put this series together, uh, and we'll be speaking with many attorneys. Uh, obviously, you've been very active uh, in the KJA. I think you were involved even back when it would have been the Kentucky Academy of Trial Attorneys. Uh, if you could just tell me a bit about your KJA experience over the years, uh, what the roles you've served in, and how it's helped you uh, throughout your practice. Well, I've I've been through the chairs there at. Uh, what's now KJA, uh, had some wonderful times, uh, uh, a lot of good parties associated with him. Uh, a lot of, uh, some of my best friends uh, were acquaintances I made through KJA. Uh, it, you know, you find great generosity of, uh, of the folks that are involved, they're willing to help you with their cases. Uh, it's just, it's a fun organization to be involved in. But more importantly, it's the single best defender of the jury system that I know of. Without KJA, our opportunity to have jury trials would have been greatly diminished by now. Every citizen, whether they know it or not, owes a debt of gratitude to KJA. And every lawyer involved in litigation should pay that debt by making contributions of money and time to support KJA. Its leadership under the guidance of Marisa has been outstanding. 
It's been one of the most effective organizations in realizing its mission that I'm aware of. And Marisa deserves a big thank you from all of us who do, who do this kind of work. So uh, I encourage folks to get involved in KJA, fully immersed in it, and participating in various ways. And they will find that they will reap great benefits, uh, many different facets of benefits from being involved in KJA. You're right, it is fascinating. You know, just the camaraderie, um, it, it always blows me away when if I have a question or another attorney has a question and you send out an email uh, and just, just the amount of response and the amount of people taking time out of their busy practice to help you with an issue that you have, it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a great organization. It is, Charlie. Like we like we talked about, you know, you've been doing this a long time, um, and you've been um, all throughout the state uh, trying these cases. Really fascinating cases. Um, do you have any thoughts on the future of practice, or, or how some of the ways it's changing, and you know how you've adapted your practice as far as uh, the legal system and just society in general changing? It's changed immensely since I've been practicing. Uh, and primarily, uh, the change has come about as a result of the marketing that, that takes place now regarding the practice of law. Uh, I wouldn't know how to advise a young person about uh, developing a practice because the way I develop my practice, I think probably is irrelevant now. I think it, I think marketing so much more uh, prevalent and so much more effective uh, that uh, working hard for your client, uh, trying your best, uh, and uh, treating people right. Uh, that was kind of the formula when I started out. Uh, and I'm not sure that it would work now. Um, I, and so I, I really can't give much advice on how to develop a practice. Uh, I, I would say that uh, if, if you're trying cases, uh, you're doing some of the hardest work that I'm aware of. It's incredibly stressful. It requires, requires a multitude of skills. Uh, and so I think that even uh, for any lawyer who wants to be a trial lawyer, uh, there are certain lessons that endure. And one of the lessons that I think will always be operative is that you have to really work hard and really prepare well if you're going to be a successful trial lawyer. Um, I also think that it's important that you understand the stress of trying cases and try to relieve yourself of other stresses in so far as you can, particularly while you're beginning uh, a practice. And a lot of that stress frequently comes from uh, the financial world. So I, I would tell a person 
that's starting out in the practice of law that you can be as impressive wearing a, a Timex as you can a Rolex. Uh, you can make as good a presentation driving a Mazda as a Maserati. Uh, and you can look as well as you need to look in a Brooks Brothers Scoop instead of a Brioni. In other words, try to keep that financial pressure down as much as you can. And uh, we've talked about treating your opposition with respect and courtesy and all that that can bring with you and to you. Uh, I would commend that uh, concept to the young lawyer. And finally, I would say, uh, be honest and follow the rules. Uh, and don't try to skirt too close to the edge. Many years ago, some of the really, really brilliant financial investors got in trouble. Uh, in a, it was a junk bond era. And I'll never forget an interview with one that said, you know, I tried to walk as close to that line, that ethical and legal line as I could. And he said, I fell off. He said, you can't walk on the edge of that line without stumbling. So get out in the middle of the road. And, he, and I believe that I would say that to folks uh, regarding the practice of law. Don't get over on the ethical edges. Stay in the middle. It's not going to make that much difference to your clients and to the case's outcome. So I would suggest that they take that approach to the practice of law. And uh, overall, you just want to approach the practice of law so at the end of the day, you can be proud and the folks around you can be proud about the way you conducted yourself. When you take a case, you got to stick with it and fight it as hard as you can for your client. But once you take that case, all other considerations, financial or otherwise, are secondary to what's in the best interest of your client. As my brother used to say, you stay stuck, whether it takes hair or hide and all. But anyway, those are some of the comments I would make uh, at this time to the lawyers coming along. Uh, those, those have all been phenomenal. Um, Charlie, we, we touched on it earlier. You, you've talked about how your practice uh, has evolved over the years. If there's attorneys out there or uh, you know folks who listen to this podcast that want to reach out to you, what, what type of cases uh, are you handling today? Well, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I'm actually transitioning into retirement and uh, I've, uh, extricating yourself from the practice of law is, uh, is not an easy task. Uh, I have several serious cases that will probably take me two to three more years. And uh, I still take some cases along. In fact, I've, I'm filing one this week. And uh, uh, if they're interesting to me, uh, and I like, frankly, if I like the clients and they're interesting to me, uh, then I, I will still get involved in a case. But I, I'm not actively uh, uh, trying to uh, develop a practice anymore. Uh, I am working with my wife, uh, uh, in Morganfield, where I live, and we live in Union County. I'm off counsel with her firm. So uh, we, we continue to take cases, the typical personal injury cases, but 
other kind of cases as well. But I'm a little more selective now, and uh, I'd love to talk to any lawyer that would like to talk about their cases, whether they want to get me involved or not. Uh, I'm happy to uh, uh, give them the benefit, if there is any benefit, of whatever I would uh, observe about their cases, and uh, they're welcome to call me anytime. On behalf of myself and also the Kentucky Justice Association, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. I know that uh, lawyers and people all across the state will be really interested to uh, hear the wisdom you've shared with us today. So thank you. Well, I appreciate you giving me a call. I will say one other thing, if I can, before we quit, because we, we just have to defend this jury system on every occasion that we can. It's the most effective institution we have for balancing power in our nation at a time when I believe the balance of power is out of kilter. Uh, you know, the jury system gives a well-represented individual a level playing field against the most powerful forces in America. The tort system through jury trials makes our country safer and our society more civilized. Uh, and in these cases, we need to look at ways to frame them so they have a higher calling than the parties involved. But KJA and those of us involved in the tort system must use every occasion to support and preserve the jury system because without it, not only are we lost, but the country has lost something that's invaluable and irreplaceable. We talked about this a bit with your, uh, your Ford Motor Company case. You know, obviously you've handled cases against large companies. Um, what advice would you have to an attorney who gets into a case and you realize that it's a bigger issue than just you and your client, uh, and you may be looking at an issue or a safety change that needs to be made that could save a lot of other people or, or protect a lot of other people outside of your case, and how do you work that into a case? Well, um, you mean work it into your presentation to the jury? No, I guess I was or, asking more with, you know, your, your case led to Ford making changes. Um, okay. Have you had other cases over the years where you reach a settlement yeah. that, you know, it might not just be money terms, but it leads to a company or a safety culture agreeing to make changes because of your case? Well, I think you have to make it too painful for them not to make the change, uh, ultimately. Uh, and that pain comes through uh, the threat of punitive damages. Uh, and that, that threat can be mitigated. Uh, uh, you know, Johnson Johnson's taking uh, talc off the, uh, talcum powder off the market now. I, I suspect they're motivated by being able to be in a position where they've taken it off the market rather than face more of these punitive damage uh, judgments. Uh, so you have that. And then uh, also sometimes you can just, uh, as a part of the settlement, uh, make a uh, provision that uh, certain remedial actions will be taken. Uh, and I think sometimes when you expose it, I, I, uh, the, the deficiency, it does prompt change. I, I know I had a case involving uh, a woman who had a, a, a lump removed without a localizing wire. They, 
it's a, a lump in the breast, they should put a, a wire that, that goes up to the lump so they make sure they get the right tissue out uh, when they do the surgery. And they were not using that approach at this hospital and consequently a woman uh, developed uh, breast cancer after the lump had been removed because the, the proper tissue was not removed. And they changed uh, their protocol after that case. And I think it was, uh, uh, they didn't want to see that happen again. So sometimes when you bring it to light, uh, good things can happen. Uh, sometimes it's the threat of punitive damages that makes behavior change. And sometimes you can negotiate a change in behavior as a part of a settlement. Uh, but uh, each of those uh, mechanisms uh, will uh, have to be considered in a particular case, I think, John. And I think that, you know, it goes back to, to the work you were explaining that uh, the KJA does. You know, they keep those courthouse doors open for us so we can take cases like this to trial. Uh, and get those types of results uh, and not just protect our clients, but uh, society as a whole. Absolutely, that's that's the raison d'etre for the tort system, making a safer society, making a more civilized country. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, enjoyed talking to you. It's always good to talk to an old mountaineer. Thank you for listening to Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring Tyler Thompson.